Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome back to Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda and with me in the studio is John. Today we're going to be talking about at what time in our lives we're at our most happy. Is it when we're in our 20s, 30s or maybe much later in our 70s, 80s or 90s even? And we're also going to discuss whether it's even possible to measure things like happiness. Some of us believe it is. Others don't. And then later we're going to hear from the writer Will Self. So he's going to be telling us why he doesn't use any commas at all in his new book. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is a piece of advice for all you literary geeks out there. And for technology geeks, he's talking about phone addiction and how to beat it. Guilty. So, as you all know from previous episodes in this series, Griselda has just turned 30. I'm 31. Yes, I have. Yeah, which kind of got us talking <laughs> about what the next decade is going to hold for us. Good, bad, ugly. Yeah, whether we've peaked, whether our peak is decades to come. And there's been lots in the news recently about life satisfaction, well-being, and when these things are greatest in life. So which decade is the best? So it's been something that we've been kind of reading about and thinking about, deciding whether our 20s were the greatest and it's all downhill from here, or if we have lots to look forward to. Well, yeah, if you believe Janan Ganesh, another FT columnist, he wrote a column a few weeks ago saying how the 30s were the best decade of his life and uh, it had a huge response online. He said kind of physical decline is starting to set in, but no one can notice it. Um, it's kind of a private <laughs> deterioration, he said. Men feel less pressure these days to start a family in their 30s. In your 30s, you're more energetic. You can have a strenuous social life. You're smart enough to avoid obvious follies. So for him, being in your 30s is the prime, although, you know, yeah, a lot of these commenters out. and many of them women didn't necessarily agree with his thesis. So it was it was slightly contentious. I mean, um, do you think your 30s will be the best decade of your life? I feel like <laughs> I feel good about 30s. I feel early 20s is actually a bit of a tricky time. You know, but, it's lots of uncertainty, no money, nowhere to live. There's not much, there's not much money, but stages. the money you have, you can spend on what you want because you don't care about saving, buying a flat. Yeah, you don't that's have a true. Career, you're so... more living, but you're yeah. living kind of hand to mouth. It's a slightly like precarious existence. And mm. I think the, the kind of job uncertainty thing, like now I feel so much happier. At least, you know, I just go to work every day. I wake up and I know what I'm going to do. Waking up and applying for jobs, you know, it's not fun. <laughs> or internships it would be. It's definitely not fun. But for you, 20s was the highlight, was it? Have you peaked, John? <laughs> well, I'm hoping I haven't peaked. And I'm not sure it's the highlight, but I know the thing I kind of disagree with in Janan's column is this idea that everything's kind of perfectly fallen into place and it's... By the time you're 35? Yeah. So you feel like for you it fell perfectly into place? I feel, I feel a lot more pressure now than I did in my late 20s, you know, like paying off a mortgage. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, so adult responsibilities Now, like, careers kind of actually become in. a serious thing. Yeah, yeah, now sure. So feeling the stress. No handouts from families. <laughs> no. The back of mum and dad has rolled back. Yeah, when my yeah. mum said she would stop paying my mobile phone bill, that was a big, <laughs> big challenge for me. 
Right, okay. Yeah, so I'm over, I am over that now, that's okay. So we decided to take some of these thoughts and questions to our esteemed colleague and FT columnist, Lucy Kellaway. Yeah, she always tells it like it is. She gives heart-hitting advice. So we're going to find out, hopefully, whether we have the best years ahead of us or whether they're well and truly gone. So, Lucy, thank you for joining us. Not at all. One thing that we really wanted to know is um, whether you would say that your 30s were your best decade. Oh, I was so exhausted in my 30s, I can't even remember them as the truth. (laughs) I was a sort of stereotypical professional woman. I got married at around 30 and then I started having children. So my entire 30s involved in raising children, um, which is sort of happy or miserable, don't even apply. I mean, it's intense and sort of knackering, so much so that I can't even remember what else I was doing. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting to think that there is this U-shaped curve of happiness people talk about. Presumably the kind of 40s and 50s are right down in that dip. But as soon as you start having children, things do things do change, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I think actually one of the things about happiness that people don't normally mention is that that did get miles better in my 30s is that I wasn't thinking about myself so much. Now, if you want to be truly miserable, you can obsess about yourself. And and I I spent my (laughs) teens and my 20s doing that. But as soon as I was a mother, I was interested in my children and less in in me, so my happiness automatically went up. But the U-shaped thing is interesting because... It shows what happens when you stop being so anxious again about yourself and what you can achieve. There are all sorts of... You mean when of, you're kind of coming out yes. of the you? So, so if you the think up. the you is at sort of late 40s, most people have worked out they're not going to be prime minister. They're not going to be sort of cold play. They're not going to be anything like that. And once, <laughs> you've said, once you've said goodbye to all of that, it's very, very liberating and you start feeling happier. But interestingly, in all of these surveys, and we go on slightly later, whether we believe in them or not, in your 40s and 50s, that's when you're at your most anxious. And it's the kind of inverse of this you model we're seeing about life satisfaction. So not we, in your... I, you see, I think 45. So I am now 57, nearly 58. So I consider I've already advanced quite a long way up the bottom, or a little way anyway, up the bottom of the you. And my anxiety levels started to decline very, very sharply after about 50. And it was absolutely fascinating. And I sort of think of it as going post-fear. What, like, day-to-day factors do you put that down to? So if you think of it professionally... Most of us feel that we're sort of rubbish. Most of us, really, if we're honest, have got some sort of impostery thing. But you can't, you just can't go on feeling an imposter forever because you just got to get over yourself eventually and sort of think this is what I am doing. And you can't go on being afraid of cocking things up because you do sometimes cock things up and you work out it's sort of fine. So, and maybe it's just that your fear muscle wears out. I'm not quite (laughs) sure why it is, but if I could draw a, a sort of fear chart mine started high and then got higher for a bit and then from about mid 40s has come down slowly and somewhere in my early 50s just fell off a cliff and I'm now completely post-fear. I suppose there's also something quite reassuring about there being sort of fewer options. I think in a way when you're in your very early 20s it's exciting because you could do anything Mm. but you could kind of also 
mess everything up and do nothing. And it's a time mm. of real uncertainty as well as opportunity. But isn't it a time of potential as well? That isn't one of the stresses of being much younger is that you feel that you have all this potential that you need to fill and that you won't be valued and loved if you haven't filled so it. So there's a need to kind of prove yourself. And, and th there is all of that. And I don't feel that at all. And all of the status anxiety and all of those things, all of that endless comparing yourself to other people, that you just kind of it, stop it doing blissful. magically. Yeah, it's really great. But do you not find that all just totally disappears, you know, way before you turn 30? I, I feel that that's something that happens to you when you're at uni, gradually. when you graduate. Like, I'm 31, I feel like that's way behind me now. But you know we, what career you're pursuing, you know roughly where you are, where you see, you're going. see, what we need is someone sitting here who's 80 to say to me, <laughs> you ain't seen nothing, because it's all relative to where you are now. And, you know, that's one of the things that's very, very difficult to pontificate about which age you're happy, because you, you've, you've only got as far as you have. And there was something very funny that I saw in some ancient magazine from the late 40s where George Bernard Shaw then aged 92 um, had been asked to comment on happiness at different ages and he said at the age of 92 he was old enough to know that such comparisons were an entire waste of time. So from judging what you've just said you associate work quite closely with general happiness? Yeah, I think work is. I mean, I think that there are work is very, very important to most people who have been lucky enough to have very, very interesting and absorbing jobs that we spend most of our time doing it. I mean, I suppose you, you, but you would divide it into you know your family life, which is obviously unbelievably important and anyone who's having a really terrible time in their family life no matter how good their job is they're not going to be that happy i mean looking at some of our colleagues from here when they've retired some look much younger <laughs> and some age 10 years immediately i'm guessing you're not going to name names i think it <laughs> might be a good idea not to but i think that the interesting thing is that the, the ones who were finding their work ghastly and intolerably stressful surprise surprise are much better without it but the ones who sort of needed their work they were thriving sort of, yeah, yeah then they stopped doing it and quite often you see that with politicians when they're out of office even though they get much more sleep and much more time to exercise and have a much healthier life. I mean, Tony Blair, Neil Kinnock. I was just going to say yeah. Tony Blair. Tony Blair, Tony Neil yeah. Kinnock, aged about 30 years in a week. Um, so It has its own stresses. Yeah. Well, Barack yeah. Obama's looking pretty good at the moment. He started from a fairly high base. <laughs> <laughs> so the Office for National Statistics has been releasing reports about our happiness and well-being since 2010. And they have kind of 43 data points. And it's a mind-numbingly boring report, as these things do <laughs> tend to be. Lucy, do you trust happiness surveys? I'm guessing you don't. I mean, yeah, Your I, eyes are glazing I, over. No. I, You're closing I, your eyes. <laughs> I mean, I, the reason I'm havering so badly is some very respectable economists are involved in in drawing them up, and I guess they are gathering the data as best they possibly can. But despite what, how I've been laying down the law earlier, I don't even think I'm a particularly reliable judge of my own happiness. So how you can aggregate everyone else's without doing a massive exercise and comparing apples and pears, I'm not quite sure. But I think that there are some broad things. I mean, I think the point about the the U shape is now so well established by so many different economists looking at this in so many different parts of the world I think we have to sort of accept it. Yeah and there are such sensible reasons for it you exactly. know it's a kind of it's a matter of 
how much time you have, how much money you have, what your responsibilities are, and it's sort of balancing those two things. Uh, apparently, 65 to 79 is the happiest, and you think that's possibly because you stopped working, you've got bags of time. If you're lucky, you've got a nice big pension. Well, we'll be oh, working. Well, we're we're going to be working well beyond hang 65. I mean, this, this is currently dreams. Yeah, exactly, we're working well beyond that. And I, I, our pension I don't, I don't will think be this crap. will apply to us, age 65, but, current 65-year-olds. Yeah, but you see, what's so interesting is that I mean, you could say I'm not that far off. One of the reasons why I'm so deliriously happy is that I've worked out that I will, according to an app online, I will live till I'm 94. So if you assume that I'm going to be retired for about 20 years, that means I've still got another 20 years of working life. I sort of see that almost as a sort of gift. I can start again now. And sort of do something completely different, which is actually which what, is what you're doing. Do. Yes, I'm yeah. going to be a teacher, but that seems amazing to be able to start again as if I was 22, although with the additional security that I have by virtue of not actually being 22. But you're going to be starting again, and according to the data, your short-term memory is going to be shot. Your long-term memory <laughs> is going to be shot. Um, your creativity—you you lost that in your 20s. Oh. So. But actually, as soon as you, yeah. It is true that my memory isn't completely bad. <laughs> but what is also true is that all of us do things when we want to. So if you want to learn something, if you want to remember something, you do. I mean, if you've actually got Alzheimer's, it's more difficult. But but if you're just sort of averagely, slightly losing sure. the plot, you can compensate massively by being determined to do something. And having wisdom, which... Those of us at the other end don't have. Well, that's as terribly much sweet of you, Griselda. But I, I'm not. I don't actually feel particularly wise, and I often do some very, very stupid things. But, but yeah, nice of you to say. But also, one thing that stood out in another kind of happiness survey, and this one was conducted by the University of Chicago, and it's the longest running one in America. It's been going since 1972. Mm. It's considered the gold standard of these kind of things. And they said that the biggest two things that make us happy or not one is genetic. So we can all blame our parents for our bad moods. And the other, which accounts for 40% of your happiness, is when like an isolated event has a huge impact in your life. So that could be mm. whatever, job, So it kid, could hit marriage. you at any moment yeah, in your th life. Th those two things are by far the most important. Which runs, undermines runs the views and the ends exactly. and all the other things. And in the end, there's the, yeah, I mean, the genetic thing and the lack of temperament, the lack of temperament that you were born with seems just unbelievably important that we all know from looking at our sort of siblings and our families and our friends that some people are born happy and others aren't. Another thing we were talking about actually was we were thinking about the sort of factors that make people happy or that we considered from our young-ish childless perspective to make people happy and we wondered whether being selfish or to some extent selfish can make you happier. So that is fascinating, isn't it? Because all the cheesy self-help books would say that being selfish makes you miserable. I think it makes you miserable when it makes you very self-absorbed, because as we were saying earlier, thinking and you know, worrying about yourself... It's is just a source of, of anxiety, yeah. But we all know people who are incredibly selfish who just glide through life suiting themselves. I think it may be that... To some extent, emotional intelligence may make you miserable because you're thinking too hard. <laughs> but if you're emotionally quite stupid, you have a nice night out or you do something that's vaguely enjoyable. Yeah, I agree. You're happy that. in a kind of bovine <laughs> way. There are all sorts of tests. If we believe you can measure happiness, wouldn't it be good to have something that correlates happiness and intelligence? Because I wouldn't be at all surprised if the more intelligent people were, the more miserable. <laughs> so, Lucy, to finish... We wondered, what are you most looking forward to in the next few years? You seem to be full of energy for life and ideas about what you're going to do. 
Well, I, I am looking forward to my new career. I am looking forward to starting again with 22-year-olds and trying to be a teacher. I'm sort of dreading it too, but being post-fear, that means I'm not dreading it all that much and actually feel, which I know is not how I'm meant to feel, but I feel that I can take risks now. And that's an exhilarating feeling. When your children are grown up, my lucky generation own their own houses. So I've got some financial flexibility. So weirdly at this point in my life, I sort of feel that I'm freer than I've ever been. In a funny way, you kind of come full circle to being almost quite carefree again. But what about kind of the idea of the bank of mum and dad? How... Presumably, you're going to be supporting your kids, or maybe for Actually, a very long time. I've yeah. made, you could <laughs> That's say, something my parents were petrified yeah, about. You could say that I've made a very <laughs> selfish trade-off here. I have said, I've earned enough money to support myself now. I'm not going to flog away for the next 20 years trying to do handouts to my children. And possibly that's a selfish thing, but they're all grown-ups and they've given me their blessing, so I hope it's not as selfish as all that. And as we said, there's selfishness and happiness, and you have to sort of weigh up the two things to some extent. (laughs) Hang on to the phone. That's the thing to do. It's all in the phone. My itinerary, my train times, my medical information, the whole lot. Hang on to the phone. Feel the smoothness of its bevelled screen. Place your thumb in the soft depression of its belly button. Turn it over and over. A 500 quid worry bead. And all I worry about is losing the bloody thing. That was Will Self reading from his new book, Phone, which is the third of his trilogy of novels about how 20th century technologies are impacting on our lives. And this one specifically is, yeah, you guessed it, about our phones. (laughs) Yep. And you probably heard from that the style in which Will Self writes, which is pretty experimental. Is that fair to say, John? Yeah, I mean, when I got the proof of the book, all I saw were ellipsis after ellipsis after ellipsis after ellipsis. It's just one... He doesn't do normal punctuation. No, or paragraphs. So the book is written as one continuous slab of text, and he did this in the previous book as well. No nice easy chapters to guide you through. Yeah, very little punctuation, very kind of high modernist style. Yeah, like our guest last week, Emma McBride, Will Self is also a Joyce boy, Joyce fan. So he is the second contemporary modernist we've had on the podcast. But his work is, is very different from hers. John, what do you? I mean, what do you like about Wilson? What, what was it like to read? What's it like to read his books? Well, he has a very kind of, I think of it as a very kind of like London sense of humour. Very dry, very damning, very droll. He's quite real characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a total character. Um, but I mean, real characters in the book as well. Quite sort of oddball characters. Yeah, and one of them appears in many of his books actually. Lots of in jokes for the fans. Yeah, people always comment about how difficult he is to read. And yeah, listening back to the interview, we had to get the dictionary out a few times. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nice big Chambers dictionary came out. Yeah. I personally know him more through his journalism than his literature. I have great respect for him as a writer. I do find his novels quite tricky, quite baroque. But his journalism is incredibly bitingly funny and really worth reading as a kind of introduction to Will Self, I think. Yeah, he writes about politics loads. He is a psychogeographer, so he walks or cycles most places. He's written many, many books, but he really, I guess, became mainstream is the totally wrong word because he's the least mainstream writer (laughs) I've probably encountered. But, um, you know, one of his books recently was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Um, So he's kind of, 
Yeah, I guess that introduced him to people who wouldn't otherwise pick up one of yeah, his books. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. He's one of the great living kind of chroniclers of London, as you said, and I think that is one of the real joys of reading him, is kind of delving into the history and all these back streets of London, which is kind of fun. Yeah, along with Ian Sinclair and, um, you know, Peter Ackroyd, who is a far more mainstream... Uh, a real historian, yeah. Know, ...chronicler of London life. Yeah, so he's, um, he's right up there with those guys, and he throws, like, really interesting perspectives on life in London today, especially post-Brexit, you could say. Um, Gentrification, he writes often about that. And he writes about the kind of the changing skyline of London as well. I once went to a talk where he called the Shard next to St George's Church because they were kind of, if you go from Stockholm where he lives, you you sort of see them lining up, which I see every day. He called the Shard in comparison to this beautiful old church an intergenerational tent, which (laughs) I always think of now when I go past it. Yeah, no doubt he has an original turn of phrase. And also, he was our first guest to vape in the studio. It's like a hotbox in here. He was hotboxing in the studio. Yeah, I came out stinking. It was seeping of, um... through the double soundproof doors. Yeah. Yeah. But um, no, he was brilliant to have on. And um, here he is. My subject matter is the impact of technology, but I'm displaying the impact of technology within the form of the text and within the style of the prose as well. As I say, I know it's tricky for the reader, but from my emotional point of view, I I couldn't do anything else. I'd reached a point where writing simple declarative statements that are in the simple past was impossible for me. I couldn't write a sentence anymore like he went to the pub because I'm wondering who? Who says he went to the pub? My life isn't in the simple past. My life's in the continuous present. I can barely remember yesterday, let alone... So, you know, everything's going on now for me. I'm quite an episodic person. And once I'd kind of lost faith in the capacity of literature to frame it, I I lost faith in literature's authority. I'd had a good old-fashioned, funny to say that now, Nokia mobile phone since the late 90s, and I'd hung on to it right up until 2010. But just when I was had published Umbrella, I'd got a new phone, a 3G phone, a smartphone, whatever you want to call them. And I was, like so many other people, enormously impressed, if not appalled, by how incredibly I became addicted to it. I mean, I've got wide experience of addiction, and a mon avis, the wireless-enabled phone, the proper smartphone, is as addictive as crack cocaine. I mean, I unfortunately can't smoke it. I realised very early on that I could do everything on my phone, and of course... You know, with each successive iteration, you look at the screen and think, how could I have done anything on that silly little thing I had before? But within, I would say, days on my little iPhone 4, I was writing articles, researching them and filing them. I remember within weeks, I was saying to people, I can write anything up to a 1,000-word article on this piece of equipment. I had a detachable keyboard very soon so I could write more easily. I've always loved little things. I haven't exactly been an early adopter, 
beyond adopting the expression early adopter fairly early on, looking back at my own childhood and youth when the domestic telephone was like a household god. I mean, if it rang, you answered it. It didn't matter what you were doing. You could be in the middle of an act of excretion. You could be making love, toasting the queen. And we've gone from that to, as it were, speaking on only on demand, only at our own accession, having all of these other viable means of communication, plus... You know, a computer way more powerful than the one that they had at Mission Control during the moon landings in 1969 that fits comfortably in your back pocket of your jeans. I do think that the global positioning satellite system and the fact that it's linked in real time to the handheld computer that you probably, if you're listening to this, may even be listening to this on, is a fundamental change in people's perception of space. Soon after its inception, we began having stories about, you know, silly old couples who'd driven into the Grand Canyon when they were just going to Puelli for a sandwich. So in a sense, the kind of thing I do, the, the use of this idea that the Situationists came up with in Paris in the late 60s of the derive, the aimless walk across the city, as a way of reconnecting with, you know, suturing back together human and physical geography, well, there's never been a better time to practice it. So it's a bit of a problem. I don't want to evince nostalgie de la boue, but in a way, deriving is even more interesting now that most people are wandering around staring at the missile of their mobile phones in the street than it was even five years ago. It was my friend, the philosopher John Gray, who made the observation that in the future, privacy may be perceived as a luxury only available to the very few. And I think this technology calls our attention to the fact that Consciousness itself is much more of a collective phenomenon than we dare to acknowledge. And that's why throughout the books there have been these very abrupt elysians between minds. You hop from one mind to another with no circumlocution, no introduction. You're just in another person's head. And I think that's what the technology is, is bringing on. So whether we want to think of it in terms of a loss of privacy or a gateway to a, a more collective or, or, or a more acute perception of the collective nature of human being. I, I don't know. We like to put a moral accent on technology, but it's beyond good and evil. Joyce called speech marks perverted commas and what he pioneered in Ulysses, I think, more than any other of the high modernists, though Pound was doing similar things, was the attempt to seamlessly integrate the thought of characters, their dialogue and their context into a single word stream. This is sometimes called the free and direct style. It's sometimes called monopolised narration. There are all sorts of different accents to it. I have my particular take on it. I'm a reluctant and late modernist. I mean, I, I didn't really hit full modernism till my late 30s when I started playing around with these ideas. And, and frankly, it's, a, it's, it's an epiphany. In some ways, I'd rather I hadn't had. I do appreciate the position of the reader, the sense the reader has of being disoriented.
feel very bad as a middle-aged person talking to younger people, not that I feel personally responsible, about how little I, I have in the way of advocacy, actually, at the moment. 2016 was when people woke up and smelt the coffee of contingency and understand understood once again you can talk about it in terms of you know the failure of liberal elites or the failure of liberal humanism or whatever you want to say but the reality was that people awoke again to the reality of contingency in their lives the last great age of globalization ended in the first world war there seems to be only so much rapid erosion of national boundaries and cultural differences that people can take. So I fear that there's an inevitable snapback from periods of globalisation, whether or not the globe is resilient enough to take the form that this snapback is likely to take. I don't know. It's, it's certainly very, very worrying. I think the big problem for London, is, as with a lot of Western cities under conditions of late capitalism, is, is that, that what you see on the skyline is the spatialization of capital flows and the kind of executive desktop toy shapes of the cheese grater and the, all of these other weird blocks are easily visible across the river. What we've seen is a polarization. If you think about terms zones one and two, you can only either live here if you're below the poverty line and living in substandard conditions, probably as an illegal migrant worker, or if you have over 40k a year as a single person. It's just simply not like the city I grew up in at all. People talk about diversity in London. I mean, when I was a kid growing up here in the 60s and 70s, people were banging on about how cosmopolitan London was. That was a city with an ethnic minority population of under 4%. In inner London now, ethnic minority populations in zones 1 and 2 are above 50%. So there's no comparison. The way that the liberal middle classes have witted on about London's diversity, I began to find slightly nauseating over a decade ago. What's diversity? Is it six Romanian builders hot bedding in zone six? Is that so? Or is it that you can, oh, I can walk down the end of the corner and get somebody to inscribe a fig leaf and on the, the crema on top of my, my coffee? Really? Oh, get over it. Something I said in an interview some years ago has come back to haunt me many times, which is I think I said that you know I didn't care about my readers or I didn't write for my readers. And all I meant by that was I, I'm not involved in marketing. I'm not producing a product. I mean, a writer who says, well, you know, I'm writing for AB1s between 40 and 55 who live in Staffordshire. I mean, that's not art. You know, you write for the ideal reader and the ideal reader is a tautology because it's the reader who wants to read what you've written. I acknowledge that my work is now difficult, but it's only difficult in a culture which has no aspiration to literature. And again, you know, I return people to this thought 25 and 50 years ago, people who had aspirations to being cultured in their 20s wouldn't have dreamt of saying in public that they couldn't give a damn about reading Ulysses or they couldn't give a damn about reading Proust's Alaricius du Tom Perdu. They would have instantly looked like a complete numpty and somebody who, who had no cultural aspirations at all. Now, you could say that without fear or favour. There is no aspiration 
towards the high points of literary fiction. There just isn't the aspiration. And no, I mean, I tend to get the impression, as I've always done of most of my peers and contemporaries, that they've got kind of tweed actually growing on the surface of their brains and a leather kind of elbow patch where their intuition ought to be. And in that sense, I think I am perhaps at an unconscious level responding to that by saying, well, here, perhaps at the end, the terminal moraine at the end of the great glaciation of literature, I'm putting my great big dirty icy hummock of a trilogy of novels to say, well, you know, it's still possible to do this stuff. That's it for this week. Will Sell's new novel, Phone, is out on June the 1st and published by Viking. And Lucy Calloway writes the sharp and funny column for the FT every Monday celebrating the ups and downs of office life. Next week, we're going to be talking about the Cannes Film Festival and the film industry more generally, digital disruption, Amazon, Netflix and what they mean for it. And we'll also be hearing next week from the writer Rennie Edo-Lodge about her first book, which everyone is talking about, which is called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Please subscribe to everything else on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, so you don't miss out on any episodes. And you can also listen online at ft.com slash everything else. Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Griselda Maya-Brown and John Sunya, and our music is composed and produced by Fatum. <laughs>